0: Hello, this is Dr. John Peebles. Thank you for joining us in these high altitude conversations where we have the chance to talk to the decision makers, the people at the top, the chairs and the chief executives who've made the decisions that affect our organizations and indeed often our very way of life. I hope that listening to them and their thoughts as they articulate problem and solution provides something for you to reflect on and perhaps utilize or model in your own management style or approach. These people are recognised as our top problem solvers, and the one feature they all have in common is recognised management success in organisations of substance. My guest today is a man who started his university study in his native Wales, working through a degree in modern history before diverting into health economics, health policy and management, completing a Master of Science at the University of Birmingham and then taking postgraduate studies in corporate strategy at INSEAD. He's an adjunct professor at the Auckland University of Technology and an adjunct professor management and leadership at Victoria University in Wellington. His career began in the National Health Service in the United Kingdom and he rapidly rose to senior management and chief executive. As part of the Welsh government executive, he led a radical redesign of the Welsh health and social care before coming to New Zealand and spending over a decade as the chief executive of Counties Manukau District Health Board, one of the largest district health boards in New Zealand, serving a complex multi-ethnic community of half a million plus people in South Auckland, he controlled a budget of $1.5 billion in an ageing facility with expanding needs, deteriorating building assets and demands to meet government cost reduction targets. More recently, he's taken the lead role as Chief Executive of our National Museum and Art Gallery to Papa Tongariro. Martin, welcome to High Altitude and thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks, it's great to be here.
0: Grant, first of all, let's turn to your long experience inside the health industry here and overseas. And of course, this is one of the more demanding sectors, uh, nationally and internationally. So you came to New Zealand with obvious expectations and beliefs about health management. Can we just tune into that wavelength and ask you, as an experienced health executive, how you think governments should approach such a complex business?
1: Um, I once asked a question of um, a Professor of Management uh, at the Warwick Business School back in the UK about what was the most complex organisational arrangement that he thought was around, and he immediately said it's healthcare. It's by far and away said the most complex organisational beast you can come across for a whole variety of reasons. Um, So what that says to me, there's no one particular one-size-fits-all solution. But what we've had since the Second World War uh, has been the commitment by many governments across the world to ensure that the fear uh, of uh, high medical bills when you fall un- unwell or when you're old is taken away by a state-funded or a state-insured system. Right. And I think that's a real marker of a very civilized approach. It's the the whole uh, uh, the saying that. Uh, How how a country uh, treats or a society treats its old and its young is an indicator of how healthy that society is. Um, I I think the government role in public health and in provision of healthcare is actually an incredibly important part.
0: So should government be involved through every aspect of health from birth to death and and just how much?
1: Well, we also talk about cradle to grave. (laughs) I think we, we are interesting the very changing time socially. Uh, I think when a lot of these systems were set up, and actually New Zealand was the first in the world with a, a publicly funded hospital system, um, that we were very much in the, in the time, just particularly after the Second World War, where it, the whole idea of centralised planning and, and the expert planner and the expert professional were the people who really decided what needs to happen. It was a very sort of um, uh, uh, top-down approach in terms of that. And and in many respects, um, the patient was in a different place than they are today. What what we talk about a lot in healthcare is what we call the three revolutions in healthcare. The first was in uh, the 19th century uh, when uh, we identified things like cholera and clean water, got rid of all sorts of terrible plagues and, and epidemics. By the start of the 20th century, the life expectancy in uh, the first world and the modern world um, was around about 52 um, which means that I would have been dead f- four years ago uh, if I'd been born in the early part of the 20th century. But w- what then happened across the uh, 20th century it became the, the, the century of the hospital, the, the institution of the hospital, where medical practice, antibiotics, as well as uh, uh, improving uh, living standards, have meant to say that by the end of the 20th century, people living well into their 80s um, uh, But now, we're going through the third revolution, which is actually around about chronic disease. And the role of the patient is changing with that, because actually, if you are somebody who gets diabetes, probably the biggest influence of whether or not you still get your two legs when you're 75 is actually how you manage your disease. You'll get advice and support and diagnosis from the clinician, but how you manage it will be the biggest indicator of outcomes. And that means to say, I think that idea of the system knowing best, the expert knowing best, is changing very rapidly now, particularly as we're in an era where the deference has died and with the the role of the internet where people can get lots of information that previously they they wouldn't have access to. And indeed, what it now takes to be a competent clinician is exponentially greater than it was 30, 40 years ago. So all these things are beginning to come into play that make, makes that relationship between the patient and the system or the patient and the and the clinician quite different from what it used to be. If this trend keeps going, and and certainly one of the projects we were involved a while
0: ago, there was a suggestion that people could comfortably live to 120, 140. What happens then? What's the next stage of that? Is there a stage four?
1: Well, I think the interesting thing about living to 120, 140 is, that's okay physically, but if you've got Alzheimer's and increasingly, a place like the UK, Alzheimer's is one of the largest killers of men now. Um, you, you don't really want to contract Alzheimer's in your eighty when you're 85 and keep on going to 140. I mean, you know, there's real issues there about quality of life. The other thing uh, is, of course, is that you don't live those additional 50 years as a 30 year old, you, you live them as a 70 or an 80 year old. So the fact that you can just live longer, um, I think there's some real ethical issues here now begin to develop about what that means in terms of quality of life, for example.
0: Yes, because I, I think the person who was talking to us about it, uh, when I suggested living to 140, didn't seem like a wonderful idea. He said, line a whole lot of 70 year olds up on the cliff and invite them to jump over or step
1: back and live another 50 years and see what happens. Yeah. And he didn't think many would jump. Yeah. Um and it's interesting, there was a a, a futurist who, who recently said at a conference here that he suspected that the first person to live to five hundred was already alive. Um, i you see I, I, there is an element, I suppose because we're going through a real um, sort of technological transformation now. Um, that there's there's a certain reliance on magic thinking. uh, In some in 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 some thinking about uh, in some places uh, about what the technological advances can actually do. So if you take for example um, genomics, so sequencing the genome and that can tell you the chances of you getting a particular cancer or whatever. Well, that science is in a very early stage, um, and whereas if you take um, pharma genetics, so some people with mental, uh, some mental illnesses, the way that they get, once they're diagnosed, the way they get treated pharmacologic, pharmacologically uh, is a slight bit of trial and error, you'll try a couple of drugs and see which one works, okay? Now, um, with um, uh, the improvements in genomics, you can actually identify straight away, if you know that person's genomic profile, which is the right drug. Right. Which is a great utility for the patient, but it doesn't actually change healthcare because you still need somebody to do it, the doctor to do the diagnosis, the nurse to do the caring, the drug to be produced, to do the looking uh, looking after, and the unit in which that person will be based in. So Uh that's not going to change it. So the iPhone diagnosis isn't going to take over from the doctor? No, I don't think it will. Particularly, as I think that it's the, the art, the, the art of uh, being a doctor, or the, or the art of medicine, which is that that, that sense of personal healing and the, the personal touch right. is something that we all look for in times of distress. So I wouldn't look that, look for that from an app, for example. <laughs> but it's it's obviously getting much more
0: complex, isn't it? In it terms
1: is, of health, and right? there will be some really quite amazing breakthroughs. Um, but um, it's over reliance on the idea that there there will be a pill that you can take to make you live to 150 or, you know this I think the whole issues of ethical dilemmas in there about whether or not is the right thing to do just because we can do it doesn't mean to say you have to do it
0: it's been it was really interesting just in this last week looking at a trend in Australia where private health care which has taken a big chunk of the cost I suspect um, seems to be declining mm. and is that happening elsewhere and if so what's the implication
1: um, I think it, it is changing, um, uh, and if you take for example uh, one of the major private firms in the UK, Bupa, a number of years ago got out of hospitals and got into residential care. So I think if you're looking for a pointer about where some of the more interesting uh, areas of health are going to be in the future, it's going to be residential care as we live longer. Uh, and, and also I think uh, a number of uh, operations are proven either not to be needed or are being provided better by the rest of the sort of public sector.
0: Right. Has healthcare changed significantly since you came to New
1: Zealand? No, I don't think it's changed significantly. And I I say that as either both a good and a bad thing, because I think it does need to change uh, quicker than it has been. But the agenda that we've been talking about, which is not necessarily simply relying on how you make hospitals ever more efficient, but actually about this issue about the, 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 the health status of the public and how do you maintain them to stay well at home as well as being efficiently treated when they need it has been a particularly strong feature of the New Zealand system, uh, which uh, I think is being copied or caught up to um, in, in other areas. Stopping them getting into the hospital That's in the right, first yeah. place. That's right, And um, places like the UK, um, I certainly when I was in Wales, it was a big feature what we we're doing, but not wasn't a big feature in those days in England um, and, and is now. Uh, I know that Canada and uh, Australia have been catching up, I guess, in the, 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 the amount of focus they've been putting on that area.
0: What are the most significant problems that managers in healthcare have got to address at the present time, say in the next decade coming forward?
1: Well, I think that the the, 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 the major thing uh, that for, is that uh, demand is infinite, but supply um, is finite. <laughs> so how and where you draw those lines uh, is, is very, very important and very subtle, um, and of course, how you interplay that then with individual clinical decisions, because managers will be working at a system level, clinicians will be working at individual level, and the clinicians are making very important decisions about indiv- where that line lies for individuals. Managers, I guess, uh, in in uh, marshalling the resources, is clearly making decisions at a system level about where we draw that line, and I think that's uh, a very, very important, uh, very obviously quite potentially. Quite a hot area. It's um, contentious, isn't um, it? Thank you. That's what I was looking for. It's quite a contentious area. And as one that has been an element of tension all the way through my 33 years in health.
0: Right. If Are there any special aspects New Zealand has that complicate its health management system?
1: Um, I think. Uh, when I say complicate, I don't mean this in a. Uh, there, there are some special, unique bits about the New Zealand system. Obviously, our relationship with Maori um, is an incredibly important area, one which we need to do a lot better in. Uh, and uh, there's so that's an you know important unique area. But in, in again, interesting place in Australia and Canada, they are beginning to pay much more uh, uh, attention to Indigenous health. The other things that we have, which isn't unique to New Zealand, but is I think unique to Countries with a relatively small populations with one or two uh, places of uh, large cities is that balance between having everything everywhere and the critical mass you need to have to make sure that something is both economic and safe to provide. So, that balance between what's local and what's centralised uh, for quality is again something that small countries like Wales, Scandinavia, Ireland, New Zealand, states of Australia, the provinces of Canada uh, have to face in particular
0: you you talked about maoridom but with polynesia and some of the other mixtures coming in to new zealand which is now one of the bigger polynesian societies yep. is that complicating it as well and adding another dimension
1: it adds a different, it adds another flavour, uh, another set of issues that, that, that we have to uh, uh, deal with, and I think that's particularly important in the public health space, because you know the, the approaches that Mali have, that the Pacific Islanders have, towards uh, towards their health, um, where they see their own individual health against the health of the Fano, for example. Um, when uh, how do we actually get issues of health equity um, sorted? Um, but and then, for example, you've then got um, the Chinese and Indian populations will bring another set of dynamics in terms of their own particular health profile uh, and their own particular sort of cultural way of accessing healthcare. So it brings in a lot of dynamics and complicating factors. Right. Uh, but they are things that challenges we must be up to.
0: To the average layman, if we sit back and look at our health system and, and look at the various bodies that are involved in there, it's quite complex, almost quite difficult to understand, isn't it? I mean, what's the formula? Is can it be simplified?
1: Um, I think when you, when you boil it right down to a DHB, for example, has only got two things to do. It's to keep people well and at home and productive for as long as possible, but be, provide services which are there and compassionate for them um, when they need it. Now that's at the simple bottom thing what DHBs have to do, but the issue is, uh, is that healthcare is such an incredibly complex business involving so many people and so many professionals being able to do so many things um, that it it always remains a very, very complex beast. Um, Could we make it organisationally more simple? Possibly. I think we could. But I think what we need to be thinking about, actually, is what is it that we want to get out of our our health system? What is it we want to achieve? Because you could go from a very heavily centralised system uh, with a limited number of players indeed. That's where we were at the end of the 1990s with a single HFA health funding authority To having a lot more players 20 DHBs and 40 odd PHOs, for example. Now there are pros and cons of both of those There's no perfect system So I think what you need to be doing th- thinking up before we simplify everything is What are we wanting to achieve? Because whatever solution you go to will have good will have good bits and bad bits
0: right If we look at that, then we have this unusual board structure, don't we, which run our various um, health boards, if you like, which has got a formula of both elected and appointed Mm -hmm. people. I mean, is it a good formula? Is it one you could improve on?
1: Um, it's, It's actually quite a common formula. Uh, so, again, places uh, like Wales and Scotland, for example, have very, very similar systems uh, with district health boards. I think the areas that we could have proven are probably areas that we already know about, which is this trade-off between critical mass um, and having everything everywhere, right. uh, which obviously is a focus of, of a country with a dispersed population. Uh, the uh, And to give you an example of that, um, generally people say that to be a, a, a health system was able to stand on its own and do everything that it needs to do to a level of expertise, you need a population of 500,000. If you are going to do most of the secondary care work, uh, then you need a population of 300,000. Now, many of our DHPs are well, well below that uh, as, as a population. And they need to be providing local services, but I think we need to do be doing more work in thinking about how we network those services together, how we do think about these issues of critical mass for quality and efficiency if we're able to continue to meet some of the demands of, of rising demand.
0: Right, because those, those services are often dispersed, aren't they, because they are. of the nature of the country. Yeah. Does that is that something that can be overcome by, by networking?
1: It can be overcome. There are lots of examples where it has been uh, overcome. But uh, invariably, you have this push to want to do as much as you can locally, uh, and it is, you know, obviously quite a, a complicated process of negotiation to get there, which we've done imperfectly, but done very well in some places.
0: So the next sort of real questions are, if I wanted to go and sit on the health board, um, what should I be expecting and and what should it be expecting from me?
1: Well, I think uh, in sitting from sitting on a health board, you need to be very passionate about health. Uh, also, willing actually to sit there and spend a little bit of time learning the business because it is so deep and so broad uh, that uh, it's a fascinating world to be involved in. But um, but a very large broad reach I'll be prepared to be able to do a lot of homework in terms of doing that but I also think however that you know that we do need new types of skills on our boards so I think we you know that we do need people with good financial skills for example with good commercial experience as well as we do need people who are going to be voices of the community uh, again there's no one perfect voice. Um, but you do need to have advocates, both of the business side of healthcare and technical side, and the community side.
0: Because looking at it from an outside point of view, again as a total layman, you, I'd be sort of tempted to think that good lobbying skills and the ability to be a bit of a thug and extract as much money as you could, probably from a government thing, might be one of the important features that you'd want on your board.
1: You probably need to feel you got that in your armoury somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: so. If we come back and and think about um, then the management people, the managers going forward into the healthcare system of tomorrow, how do they need to be equipped? Have we got some thoughts on those senior managers, what they should look like?
1: Yeah, um, if I was to have my time again and knowing what career I'd end up doing, uh, although I've always remained incredibly passionate about history, um, I would have done a degree in anthropology and commerce. Because those are the two sets of skills that you need to have in order to be successful in navigating your way around. Particularly the anthropology boat, which allows you to sit down and work out, you know, the, the science of behaviour um, and how and how groups of uh, human beings interact together, um, as well as knowing how to count your pennies. Uh, and and I, I think being skilled in both of those things um, is really crucially important. People also uh, made the assumption a long way through my career that I was either a doctor or a nurse once. Um, well, whilst it's, I think, always very helpful to have a background in the industry um, that uh, or trained in the industry that, that you're managing, I think it's important to understand that the role of leaders and managers is not actually to be. To be a clinician, it's to know – it's to take a complex organisation and know how to get the best out of it. Right. And that is both a, um, a, you know, a business, sense of business acumen, but it's also acumen about how to work with people.
0: If we put some simple measures over outputs, like what should we try and achieve? If we were sitting in a government role, say, for example, and saying – what are the things we want our health system to do? What would you put down?
1: Well, I would certainly not be just focusing on the number of widgets that hospitals produce. Uh, I would be thinking about you know, going forward with this debate about the aging of populations, chronic disease, how that interrelates with housing, and social care, etc. I think we need to be working out what are the markers of healthy communities and healthy individuals? And what are the kind of behavioral economics that will move people into that place? I think one thing that we need to do, I think, is thinking much more about empowering people to take charge of their health, rather than and charge of their lives, and helping them do that, rather than simply them being the recipients of decisions made by a system.
0: So that's putting a much more emphasis on education, yeah, um, in terms of healthy. Uh, Existence and lifestyle,
1: if you like. Exactly, and and you know the three things that really that that worldwide have really improved people's health status, their their quality of life um, is jobs, education, and the empowerment of young women. Mm. But particularly if you give women the, the ability to choose about their life and about their, uh, their, when they want to have children. When that's happened in societies, you've seen significant changes in those societies. I mean, it's been interesting. It's been tracked by Hans Rosling, who is a, a, a very well-known Swedish statistician who clearly identified this trend. Uh, and I think those three things are the things that we possibly be thinking about in terms of getting those right, and that will then drive things forward.
0: Because we see the statistics about the differences, don't we, in the various communities from Maori and European and so on. But um, what happens when we've got those statistics? We don't do anything with them, or do we just acknowledge them and say that's what happens?
1: Well, I I think what we don't do, or don't do well enough um, generally, is take into account two things. One is that with all our different diverse communities in New Zealand, we all have different worldviews. Okay, um, so we need to be seeing it through the the lenses of those people, because if their worldview is different, you coming to them with a particular set of assumptions isn't going to work. The second thing is if you stop speaking of people as if they're in deficit, I mean, one of the things I've certainly found when I was in South Auckland is that people in South Auckland don't see themselves as being in trouble, being in deficit. They may be economically challenged. They may have lots of things to worry about, but they don't see themselves as a problem to be fixed. And I think we should stop thinking about people as problems to be fixed and thinking about people and what is it that we can do to enrich and improve their lives.
0: That's a pretty interesting dimension, actually, isn't it? It does change your thinking
1: a little bit when you come to it.
0: How's technology affecting you in the health system?
1: One of the reasons why a lot of health systems um, across the world have struggled with the implementation of technology um, is because healthcare is so incredibly complicated. It's not a simple Uber-like transaction. It is thousands and thousands of interactions taking place all of the time, Uh, and countries struggle with it, either at an individual hospital level or at a national level, and nobody has got it right. And um, I, I, I do think that healthcare is probably one of the next indices very ripe for the kind of banking revolution that we saw in technology a, a right. while back. But it is an area which is a minefield uh, for organisations and for careers, um, for people who be, who've got involved in it.
0: Who's, who's made the biggest advances? Who's the models we've started to look at? as uh, um, people that should be really, you know, the, the, the ones that are setting the standard.
1: Yeah, you... the, the one that a lot of people talk about is called EPIC, um, which is based, which is used by Kaiser Permanente right. uh, and other other uh, systems uh, in the United States. But we have to be careful there because, again, the United States is a system which is very, very much... Catered for an insurance business model rather than, so it's about tracking payments rather than it is necessarily about tracking health. Right. So, uh, so I'd say again, it's there's no one perfect system, although they're beginning to get better. Right. South Korea has done a superb job working with Samsung. What I, uh, what I hadn't realised uh, when I was when I was sort of looking into this issue was. That I thought Samsung made TVs and fridges. Um, they, they're actually about one fifth of the entire South Korean economy, and run hospitals and run their own health systems. And they've got again, they've got some very interesting uh, things on in display there.
0: So if we start, if we start with the customer, that's or the, or the person, yeah. that's where our health system should focus.
1: I think so. Um, if you just leave it, that it's the system knows best. Uh, Well, you'd have to say, i 50 years telling people to eat more green vegetables, um, exercise more and drink less. I mean, you'd have to, which is what we've been doing, which is a very sort of scholarly way, educationally way, telling people that they should live healthier. Well, it hasn't really worked, has it? Um, So maybe we should try and do something different. (laughs) If we had a clean
0: sheet of paper, let's assume in New Zealand we had the clean sheet of paper and we were starting from scratch and it was a new state. How would you set up a public health system?
1: I would make it personally. I'd make it fully integrated. Uh, in term, uh, would be the first thing, which would therefore I'd include all the primary, secondary, tertiary care. Not necessarily want to control it, um, but I think getting having a way of having that full continuum of care is very very important. Yeah, yeah. I would. Um, I'd make sure that um, things like. Social policy, health policy, and housing and education policy were very well aligned. I think one of the challenges we find we'll find in any country is that you know doctors may make decisions next to the patient, health services will make decisions on a district basis, educational policy may be done on a regional basis, social policy and benefit settings will be set at a national level. All of this will be tumbling down silos yeah, and, and hitting people in a very uncoordinated way. Um, so what we need to do is coordinating those services and those policies together uh, effectively. And I think what we, sh- what we should be doing is, is, is really measuring what we really need to manage. So, rather than just thinking about it's yet more widgets produced by the hospital, etc, in an era of chronic uh, chronic disease, actually better productivity is, is having less people with diabetes or less people having their legs amputated because of diabetes. So there is this element of productivity where less is definitely more, and we had, and we need to be thinking about the utility of our actions rather than just the volume of them
0: mm. because in some places we we you know, we're talking about the health of people growing and we've got things like South Auckland and I think one stage you mentioned to me, kidney failure, mm. uh, going up dramatically inside an area like that and the cost of doing it yeah. and the alternatives for someone who's managing on a limited budget as to how you deal with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is, it is really, really, it's really tough. I mean, the impact that dialysis, which is uh, the function of kidney disease and often of the more advanced stages of diabetes, if you've got a population which is, you know, got a, a fair element of that. The impact that it has on, on, on people's lives is, is huge. Like, you know, If you're on dialysis, you, you may be doing that three times a week for several hours. You will find it difficult to hold down a full-time job. Um, and you may be the only bread in your family, and you may have five or six kids. So you can see the kind of pressure that puts in. And particularly if we're talking
0: about uh, longevity, yeah. and we're then saying how much does the, the system need mm-hmm. and, and who's funding that system, yeah, as we go forward. Yeah, should the funding all come from the taxpayer?
1: Um, That's an awkward one, isn't it? Um, no, I, I don't think it's an awkward one. I, I, I think having a well-funded uh, public health system is very, very important. Um, and whether whether or not it's funded through publicly funded through insurance which is the Bismarck system we have in lots of places in uh, in in Europe whether or not it's funded by a sort of uh, a, a direct funding system one the single payer that you do uh, it have here and in in the UK and other jurisdictions or with with small elements of copay actually it's all about that's all very strong significant public funding um, mm-hmm. In areas where, you, it, it's an interesting observation that in, in the one country which has the strongest private sector, whole private sector healthcare system in the world is the most expensive one, which is the USA, where they're spending over 20% of their GDP on healthcare, where most other countries are spending some in the region of 10, 10 11, 12%. And that's caused a lot by, by the fact that if you, if you're in a competitive market, you want to make sure you're providing all of the services. So you have to have the CT scanner, the MRI scanner. Whether or not you actually, the population surrounding you needs to have it, you've got to have it. So it sort of pumps your costs up. Uh, so I think having a well, a, a, a strongly publicly funded health system, taxpayer funded health system, one sort from another, is also a good way of breaking costs and making sure good sense of equity. And what I think is is really quite interesting, this is probably one area of taxpayer expense, which has had a strong buy partisanship in many, many countries and understanding the the, the values of that.
0: It's quite interesting because we talk about private and public health care, but in some cases they get really mixed. So if you look at the Auckland Children's Hospital, for example, and I don't know much about it, I just simply know that it seems to raise a lot of money in a private way. And for a public institution, that seems to be something that's a little confusing to try and grapple with. And I think someone's just talking about giving a hospital in childcare to Wellington, Mm. which is a private donation, and yet then it imposes something on a taxpayer. I mean, um, are are those two things compatible and should they be should they be separated out? Or a...
1: Well, yeah, um, because I, I, I think if in take of the the foundation that we had at Middlemore Hospital, that was all about paying for things extra additional things um, that would add, you know, more quality and, and improvements, but weren't the essentials, if you see what I mean. So, mm. but also, I wouldn't want to, to step away from the great philanthropic sort of citizen. Ship that we have in New Zealand, where there's always been a great focus on people raising money and doing charitable good, good works, and I think that again is an important bit of, of, of what it means to be, you know, a really healthy, thriving society.
0: Is is private healthcare, Is it going to work easily alongside or in? Always has, and will continue to do so.
1: Yeah, it always has, and will continue to do so. I mean, and, and the public system at times sources services in the private sector.
0: Right.
1: Yeah, if <coughs>
0: putting aside um, other things that um, political, I mean, if if. Was there one single frustration you really had when you were running a health operation? Was there one thing that you sat there and constantly kicked the wall at night about, or was it...
1: uh... Um, No, there wasn't one consistent thing. Um, I, I remember when I decided I wasn't going to be an academic historian, which is what I originally wanted to do. I sort of sat, and that was what I wanted to do from my entire life up to that point. I just decided that having got halfway through a PhD during the Russian Civil War, nineteen eighteen to nineteen twenty-two, um, that that probably <laughs> wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest <laughs> of my life. How, however, passionate and interested I was in it, um, so I, I sat down and, for the first time in my life, I thought thought through what I wanted from a career, um, and I wanted, I, I guess two things. One is I wanted to do something that was very complicated because I have a low boredom threshold. Um, and I wanted to have something which was about public good because that sort of ticks my boxes. Uh, and, uh, and so I wrote those two things down. I went to the University Career Service and said, gives a job. Uh, and, and they came back and said, well, you should go into hospital management. Um, and until then, I really hadn't thought about hospitals needing to have managers uh, and read about it, got involved in it and got really bitten
0: there's there's a couple of people i mean have mentioned to me over the years that in some cases the doctors themselves have disenfranchised themselves by not carrying through the management side and almost looking at it sideways as something that is a bit contaminated is
1: Is that still the case or is there a change going on? In oh there? it's far less far less is um, it? yeah. Uh, you know when you get the combination of a great clinician and a great leader that's uh, that's really special when you get to see that and if they have got a seamless relationship
0: yeah. obviously very good yeah
1: and and all, but the important th- yeah absolutely the important thing is to to understand that people go into into medicine because they really care about people because they want to you know right. treat and, and and help people and that's the primary reason and it's and you're taught very strongly to be focusing on what is best for your patient, yeah? It's very difficult then to move into another world where it's about trade-offs and balancing things.
0: What can I actually give them because I don't yeah. have the resources or That's I don't right. have the resources. Um, uh, yeah. There must have been some great wins. Were there things that you looked at and said, gee, I'm really proud I did X?
1: Yeah, I, I think the thing I'm probably most proud of is uh, uh, something I established in South Auckland um, called Grow Your Own um because then it speaks a little bit to some of the issues i've been raising up um uh, in, in in earlier in the podcast which and it was fantastic i need to acknowledge here Stephen Tyndall, who was, uh, really helped finance this and was a great supporter of it that you know we healthcare is a global industry uh, and therefore suffers or, or suffers or experiences a global competition for um for clinicians and mm. Uh, and when I look at the makeup of the stuff at, uh, at, at Middlemore Hospital, we were importing a lot from overseas. You know, the traditional way of doing it is you train some, you got some elsewhere in New Zealand and imported a lot, hence the irony of my accent. Right. Um, and yet, at the same time, I'm surrounded by a sea of young people in South Auckland who could massively benefit from the training and the jobs that we could provide if you could manage to reach out to them. And if we could put a nurse or a doctor in every extended family in South Auckland, what you would do is obviously pump a lot of money into the local economy, which it needs. You would also give people role models to work with. You'd, you'd improve um, the, the health, uh, health knowledge, the uh, health education of the local communities. And you get an all around win-win because you've got this uh, reservoir of fantastic people on tap. And so what we did with Grow U.M., we went about from intermediate all the way forward to actually focus on, on schools in South Auckland and get the kids attached to the hospital, understanding the careers, seeing the kind of mentors of, of Samoa and Malik, people who've been through and nurses and who are doctors now, to give them that sense of ambition and role model. And we've now seen the, the first... Um, First of those graduates of this of that program coming out, who are now themselves training as doctors and nurses and other first university graduates and their family, uh, and that feels to me a sort of lasting legacy, which I'm really proud of being part of. It's something that's not
0: going to happen overnight. It's a generational thing, isn't it? Absolutely, isn't it? yes. So then you decide to change roles completely and go and run a museum. Um, so talk to us about the transition was it must have been a bit of a culture shock oh,
1: it wasn't it wasn't uh, culture shock i'm always one i suppose but um i think if you look at the organizations that i've been involved in in my career hospitals I, I, i'm going on a, a council one of the universities here i'm the chairman of the and philharmonia orchestra um and now i'm the chief executive of the museum they're all essentially the same organization they're all full of incredibly talented dedicated passionate people who are passionate about their Thing that they concentrate on, whether it happens to be an oboe player or a researcher or a neuroscientist or, or a curator uh, looking at a painting. Um, and that's their focus. Less so the organisation around them, but their focus is that, the thing that they care about the most. But the organisations they're in have a big impact on the world around them, hospitals, universities, orchestras and um. Uh, museums. Um, so in that sense the psychology uh, of or the sociology of those kinds of organisations are, are the same and I find myself almost having the kind of conversations in the museum I would have with clinicians uh, about what to do yeah uh, but the other thing is when you see my, my background which is in modern history and russian studies um uh, i've always been very very passionate about the arts so and I, and I always go to a museum when i get go abroad because it tells you exactly the journey that a country has been on uh, i first went to russia in the early 1980s um and the mid 1980s um and then you, you go to the russian historical museum which is on Red Square, and you go in there, and the history then started in 1917 with the revolution and finished in 1980 with the Moscow Olympics. I went ba- back there then a couple of years ago to the same museum. Now, history now starts in the 1450s, glorifies imperial Russia, stops in 1917, and starts again with Vladimir Putin. <laughs> that tells you everything of the journey that that, organization, that, that, sorry, that, organization, that country has been on. Uh, over the last 20, 30 years. So they're fascinating places to be. They are reflections, they are mirrors of the society around them. And I also realised, I think a couple of years ago, that the thing that I was becoming more and more interested in, and I suppose it speaks to the, the grow your own idea, is is looking at the impact that an organisation has on the world around it. Mm. Uh, and that's something that I've become in, increasingly interested in. Um, whether that happens to be around sustainability, it happens to be around the good you can bring to you know, the fabric of society or reflecting what, what society is about or being a house of treasures. I think for me that's that's become the third thing that really motivates me when I go to work.
0: So what's next on the horizon for Gairam Oh
1: God, I don't know. i um, i I'd, I'd got that sort of... Um, I I'd, I'd do something while it's challenging, then when it stops being challenging I'll stop doing it. Um, I... Just love working at Tapapa. It's an absolutely fascinating role. When I stop doing that, how I stop doing it, or, or should I stop doing it? Um, oh, wait, I won't say that again. Uh, when, when I decide to move on from Tapapa, which I will um, at some point, um, do you know, I don't know at the moment. Um, but if you said to me a few years ago that uh, when I was working at Middlemore, head down, bum up, really having a great, having a really exciting, challenging time there that a few years later I would be doing a museum to Papa. I would have thought no nah, not really so who knows what sort of curveballs to get through?
0: excellent Karen, thank you for sharing your experiences and your wisdom we sincerely appreciate the opportunity to capture your thoughts and thank you we appreciate it thank you for joining me and my guest in this high altitude conversation if you enjoyed the show please share this with your C-suite colleagues and rate the show on iTunes if you will in the meantime
1: go well